Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Kielder Observatory podcast. Coming from Kielder Observatory, situated in the Northumberland Dark Sky Park in Northern United Kingdom. I'm Ian Brannan and joining me in this episode is science communicator Ishbel Wright and our director of astronomy, Dan Pye, to have a look particularly at what you can see in the night sky as the nights get a little lighter in the UK, heading towards the summer solstice, of course, in June. We also speak with Melanie King, who is an astrophotographer, an artistic astrophotographer, with um, a particular specialism in using traditional forms of taking photographs. So not using your digital cameras, but doing it the old-fashioned way. And we'll talk about some of her images and uh, how you can take some interesting pictures as well in the old-fashioned format in just a little while. But first, let's start off by having a look at what's been happening at Kielder Observatory recently and uh, also what there is to look out for in the night sky as we move through May in towards June. Um, Dan, welcome along. Nights are getting lighter then, Dan. What is there to look out for for the budding astronomer? Because the, you know, the dark skies are not as dark as they usually are, let's face it. Well, it's known as the Great Southern Migration now. Um, where astronomers, if they want to do astronomy, we've got to go south. We've got to go further down the globe in order to be able to get our our dark skies. So still get bits of that in, in the southernmost tip of England. Um, and that's really good, actually, because if we go to the southernmost points of England now, um, we're going to start to see the Milky Way coming into view and it's going to be quite nice uh, a little bit later in the night. Um, and certainly if you were to go places like Spain on your summer holiday, you've got places that you could go to to escape the light pollution of your wonderful tourist destinations and, and see a beautiful dark sky, particularly if you were heading to Tenerife um, this this summer as well. Um, so always an opportunity to to, to take the summer um, or as a stargazing opportunity in other countries. Um, but here in the UK, we we were kind of restricted to our, our bright objects, the moon, some planets. Mercury is at its greatest eastern elongation on the 29th of, uh, 29th of May. Um, sorry, greatest western elongation on the 29th of May, uh, which means it's going to be at its highest point above the horizon in the morning sky. So nice and early in the morning, just before uh, sunrise, we'll be able to see uh, Mercury coming up there. It's a good time of year to see that. And also, we're starting to approach noctilucent cloud season. Oh, yes, and we love noctilucent clouds. It is, yeah, absolutely. Noctilucent clouds are amazing. These are little particles of dust in our atmosphere, often from, from entering meteors, so entering space rock, uh, creates these beautiful clouds of, of dust and ice, uh, which reflect sunlight uh, beautifully and illuminate the night sky. Beyond midnight usually is the best time to see these, midnight through to 2 a.m., uh, is when they're at their brightest and from mid mid may through to beginning of august mid august and uh, they literally do look like glowing clouds in the night sky um that, that that's what they're named and that's what they look like they look very odd because you you realize that oh hang on a second it's midnight why is there some clouds that are that are, that are br- bright blue. What's going on here? And it's that's what it is. It's bit of bit of dust and ice particles in our atmosphere reflecting sunlight from the other side of the planet. So 
that, look, that to look forward to. Yeah, something to look forward to there, the noctilucent clouds. Um, conversely, though, the aurora, that's moving away from us now a little bit, isn't it? Because it has been quite an active period for the Northern Lights. A lot of people seeing them, not just in Northumberland, but right across the northeast, right across the UK, uh, even down to the southern UK. So they have been very active, but we're, uh, we're getting away from that time of year now, aren't we? Yeah, it's going to be it's going to be challenging for us to see the aurora as we start to get into these later, uh, sorry, lighter nights now. Um, so yeah, it's, it's we're we're heading out of aurora season for sure. Um, if you want to see some aurora now, good places to go for that is Tasmania, Southern Island, New Zealand. They're heading into their winter time, so it's getting darker for them now. So fancy a long trip on a on an airy plane? That's where you're going <laughs> to see some aurora. So. Yeah, well, the aurora will be back later on in the year, all being well, uh, as we get towards the uh, the end of the summer and in towards uh, autumn. So it will be back before you know it. But we've got the summer to look forward to first. Meanwhile, Ishbel, um, you've been in prison. Is that is that what I read? Did I read that right? <laughs> <laughs> so um, over the last uh, two months, me and my colleague Finn have been going into HMP Northumberland. Um, to start an initiative to engage the prisoners in the rehabilitation education program for uh, getting into science and also we've paired it with writing Um, so we've also got a writer who's coming in to um, uh, do some workshops with them as well to create some poetry inspired by astronomy by the vastness of space and we saw one of the poems actually and it was it was heartbreaking it was really good and so what's been the, the general reaction from the people you've been working with uh, in prison then, from, from the prisoners, from the staff? What's been the reaction to this? Because obviously I, I imagine something quite different to what they've uh, usually been used to in, in terms of their education and, and, and so on. So I think it's been quite positive. Um, first time we went in, we had a very large group um, and sat down, kind of like you do in primary school with like a big assembly um, and... Uh, we had presentation and handed out some booklets on space and they were really into it. I mean, we had an hour and a half to fill, I think. And the original presentation is only about 40 minutes. So we were like, oh, this might be difficult to fill. And no, we were talking right up until the end with all their questions on, you know, they got really into like dark matter and um, space. And like there were some, a lot more simple questions, but some really complex questions as well. And you know, they were really keyed into and interested about it because it's not something that's taught an awful lot at schools um, and it's not something that you get to learn an awful lot about and I think it was something that they enjoyed being in the classroom for because a lot of them are there to um, just catch up on basic English and basic, basic mathematics skills and having something that's a little bit more interesting than um, addition and subtraction is caring about it because it relates to science so it's kind of inspiring them to want to be there and come to class and um you know care a little bit about it and more i'm sure that you know it's there's a little bit for everyone in it in astronomy uh, so i thought it was it was really cool to do um yeah, it's something very, very different as well, and, and well done for, for doing that. And um, that, no doubt, continues as well uh, in the background. Of course, there's plenty of sessions coming up um, at Kielder Observatory as we head through the summer. Of course, they're starting to fill up a little bit now. The kids' sessions returning through the holidays. Uh, but there's plenty that you can book ahead to and find out how you can come and visit us at Kielder Observatory uh, online at uh, org. And you can also inquire about any, if similarly, if you're looking 
looking for any uh, community outreach or uh, want to have a, a school visit or, or whatever it is, then uh, again, details online, kilderobservatory.org. The Kielder Observatory Podcast. I'm Ian Brannan, Dan Pye, Director of Astronomy and Ishbel Wright, Science Communicator at Kielder Observatory, are with us. And our special guest this month is Melanie King, who is um, an artistic photographer with a particular specialism in the field of astrophotography. But also, it's more about, too, the way that the, the, the photographs are processed and imaged, because these days, many of us have... Uh, great cameras even just in our pockets on our mobile phones or you might have uh, quite a big uh, DSLR and then you edit your photos in Photoshop but remember in the olden days when it was all about going into dark rooms and doing the old processing there and enlarging the pictures from the negatives and all that kind of stuff then um, I'm sure you do remember that but many people don't and this this sort of way of making photographs is perhaps not as popular, obviously, as it used to be, particularly in astrophotography terms. But uh, Melanie King is one such photographer who is very much keeping that flame alive. And uh, she joins us to tell us about some of her work now, which looks absolutely stunning. But thanks for joining us, Melanie. Start by telling us about your processes, first of all, and and how you do your photographs. Okay, so, um, yeah, I'm Melanie King. I'm a photographer, um, primarily working in analog and alternative photography processes. Um, and my work that I've been doing recently is taking analog photographs of the night sky using um, analog film and things like that. So actually, I've been doing a PhD for the past seven years, which is kind of focused on this subject. And I'm really interested in that kind of idea of the light traveling for millions of years before reaching film and then being able to kind of tangibly hold that film. So that's kind of the nexus of what my research is about. Um, and so I've been to lots of dark sky areas, been to places in Iceland and Ireland and Spain. Um, but I've also done little residencies with observatories. Um, so I did one with UCLO Observatory um, working with a guy called Theo Schlichter and we were able to kind of mount my film camera onto the telescope and take some photographs of the moon and take photographs of like, stars like Arcturus um, using their film camera. So yeah, and now I've kind of moved into this area and working with more sustainable photographic processes. So previously I was working with kind of standard developer and now I'm moving into an area where I'm making my own developer out of plant-based options like coffee and seaweed with the sea and things like that <laughs> wow okay so so really you're you're spending a lot of time in 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 the classic dark room then because obviously that's something that you don't see so much these days and so you're spending your time in the dark <laughs> photographing and then more time in the dark uh, making these things come, become a reality absolutely yeah so that's kind of one of the things i'm talking about is that i spend a lot of time kind of in out in the dark sky areas and working, I'm sure you guys know, working in that kind of environment is a bit tricky because you're like feeling around for your shutter release and you're, um, you kind of tune into different things in the landscape that you wouldn't usually in a kind of daytime environment. And then I've also been looking at what it's like to work in the dark room and kind of talking a little bit about that and um, how you've got a similar kind of light quality. So you're working with your hands a lot more and going by the sense of touch and smell a lot more 
Um, so yeah, I found it interesting to draw parallels between the two. And where did your interest in all things celestial come in, I suppose? Because obviously it's, it's a big part of your work, but clearly you have a, a natural interest in, in space and the universe and planets and the moon and, and, and things yourself. It's actually from a fear. So I used to, when I was about eight years old, I used to lay in bed thinking about like um, the distance of stars and the size of stars and kind of like at that point I didn't really understand much about how the universe works and I'm not saying that I do now but I knew a lot less then. Um, but yeah, I kind of was thinking about infinity and kind of vast differences, distances and it made me feel quite scared and frightened and then as I did my arts education I had some lecturers who were kind of talking about how they confront their fears through their artistic practice and then it became more of like a fascination and like this endless uh, area of interest because yeah there's so many things being discovered all the time and yeah I find that really like overwhelmingly fascinating rather than overwhelmingly terrifying <laughs> and as a photographer it's all about light of course and and what you're capturing is unique you know this 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 orb of light uh, you know left its origins sometimes millions of years ago and has traveled through space and uh lands up in your camera yes it's fascinating and i really enjoy the fact that when i'm working with the film the photon has kind of touched that silver gelatin material um, and that I can tangibly work with that. And also in one of my recent projects, I was looking at like the origin of silver and platinum in the universe um, and how that can only be made in stellar events. So I was kind of excited by the idea of um, silver being made in kind of these high energy supernova explosions and then also that it's meeting the light from another star which is yeah kind of mind-blowing i've just had a small crisis in my mind no i've just just had a small crisis because i was thinking about the way that 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 our eyeball um takes light and it's able to figure out what color light is based on the, the the wavelength and then I was thinking, well, how does how does photographic paper know that, or how does something that you capture in a photograph with know what color it is? Is it able is it able to almost take the wavelength and read the wavelength and go, okay, that's the color that that should be? How does that work? For some reason, that doesn't make sense in my mind, and I don't know if it's something that we're going to resolve now, but <laughs> it's just a crisis that I've just suddenly realised I've had. Thank you. Yeah, I find that fascinating as well, like the idea of light traveling into your retina, and then yeah but your brain processes the information. just find that, yeah, fascinating. Going from, um, obviously, having your interest in this and, and then taking the photographs and as you do, how did that then become exhibitions and, and things like that that you've done? Because you do the, the exhibitions of, of your work, um, and a number of them. How does that then sort of manifest itself into a professional level and, and you decide that this is the this is the topic for you and this is what you're you're going to do your exhibitions about I would say that it kind of happens in a different way around so I'm, I kind of make the work often and then exhibitions come along that are kind of curatorially uh, looking at that area so for example I did a exhibition um, as part of 
Moonlight at the Hasselblad Foundation, and that was all artworks around the moon, and that was curated by a curator called Dr. Melanie Vanderbrook. Um, and then I also had a exhibition at um, KU Leuven in Brussels in Belgium, and that was all about um, the Big Bang. So they were kind of interested in um, works that were to do with the dynamic uh, nature of the universe. So they were really interested in some of my kind of star trails images and um, I have a time lapse that's on 60 millimeter film of the night sky as well that they were interested in. Um, so yeah, I, generally it tends to be I make the work and then other people come around and say, oh, that kind of fits well into our exhibition or adds a different kind of um, part of the conversation, I would say. Um, <clears throat> but then, yeah, me, I kind of things like I had the project which is called Precious Metals, which is kind of about that cosmic silver um, idea. Um, that was something that I worked on for about a year and a half and then I had an opportunity to have a solo exhibition at the end and so I chose works that were kind of taking you on a story through the different elements of things that I wanted to talk about. And how do you go about, obviously people now are much more used to uh, digital processes and you know, you've know you got a, a really powerful camera often in your pocket now on your phone and that can do all sorts of things through various apps and time lapse and stuff and that's all, all well and good. But you're doing it the... You know the old school way more often than not on on film and and developing it. So when you're doing star trails, is it is it just a case of of keeping the exposure open and 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 leaving it on there, or are you putting multiple shots together? What what's your processes? Yeah, so it's always um, doing it as a long exposure rather than doing any kind of stacking. Although I think that would be quite interesting. And I was kind of inspired. There's a book called Picturing the Cosmos by Elizabeth Kessler, which talks about uh, contemporary astronomical images being composite, so different light frequencies and things like that. And out of response to that, I was interested as kind of like a question, like how you would go about making an astronomical image with a limited amount of remediation and without making composites. So my PhD kind of research kind of came out of that and it's a question I've been trying to answer ever since. Um, but yeah, I have tried to visit astronomical photography as well, and I have enjoyed that as well. I just find it interesting to experiment with, yeah, thinking about as limited mediation as possible. Honestly, my only experience with dark rooms is watching Funny Face, you know, the, the musical with uh, Audrey Hepburn and Fred Astaire. And they just, you know, they put the film in the buckets and then, you know, it goes, you, you get the one that just goes green and then the one that just goes red and the one that yellow. And at the end, it produces one picture. So I know it's the primary colours layered upon each other. Um, but how does the paper know which bits to dye? Interesting question. I'm not sure. As far as I understand it from like a black and white level, like the light comes in and wherever the light hits, it goes dark and there's kind of like a tonality. Um, so... But so it's all in negative. So interestingly, like colour photography and colour film photography, that is, as far as I understand it, negative colour. So it's kind of when you're working in a colour dark room, you're often working to the opposite, um, which is fascinating. So. Well, yeah, so when... I mean, I'm no expert in colour photography, so I'm not the like oracle here. But um, 
when you go into a colour dark room, if say if you have too much yellow in your print, then often you add yellow instead of taking it away um, on the enlarger. So it's like whatever you would think you need to do, you kind of do the opposite. <laughs> um. Um, so one of the main reasons at the moment particularly is sustainability. So colour chemicals are much more toxic because um, uh, they have like a bleach stage and then they have to be at a certain temperature as well. Um, and with black and white chemistry, it is still not great for the environment, but you can start making plant-based developers. So the things that I'm using like seaweed developer and coffee developer, they're much better for the environment, but they only really work on black and white at the moment. So one of those reasons. And also, because again, I was thinking about the kind of limited mediations and um, yeah, that that is another step, I think, moving into the colour photography. But it's also kind of like an aesthetic thing as well. And maybe trying to think about being slightly different to a lot of contemporary astronomical images that are around at the moment might just be slightly... Yeah, they do um, focus on getting an awful lot of colour and people go, wow, is that what it really looks like? And you're like, no. <laughs> no, not really. People have played with the filters a lot there. Um, but the images you produce are... They're hauntingly beautiful. How do you come up with producing ideas like that? Like, because I would, I've seen stuff like this, actually capturing it. No idea where to start with that idea, or like even just having that process of this would make a good photograph. Yeah. Um. So, I think one of the things that I wanted to make clear in a lot of the photographs, um, the black and white photographs, um, is that I wanted to include the landscape in the photograph. Um. So, yeah, when I'm going to these different locations to take photographs of the night sky. I am really keen to, um, yeah, kind of make that link between things that are on the earth also being part of the universe as well. So it's not just me looking up at the night sky, it's kind of bringing it all together. Um, so I try and frame my photographs in that way so I have the landscape, um, yeah kind of included in the image and now I'm moving into kind of as I say more plant-based materials I actually would use some of the plants within the landscape to make the image as well so yeah I'm very interested in like as you might have guessed the materiality of of the things around us whether that's like silver in space or whether that's like the phenolic benefits of of plants and how they can affect image as well so yeah it's all kind of interconnected yeah it does yeah and just on the on the plant-based stuff so have you noticed a difference in the kind of results that you get from plant-based stuff versus uh, the, the 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 lesser plant-based stuff i'm not sure what the lesser plant-based stuff would be but <laughs> yeah. yeah um so all of them have different effects so if you use like um a hydroquinone based developer and um, often you can get really clear, clear, crisp results. But also, even within that, you can use different developers to get different effects. So things like coffee 
Um, coffee is a really like famous plant-based developer. It's called Caffeinol C because it it's made out of coffee, vitamin C, and soda crystals, and that can make very clear crisp effects. <laughs> oh yeah, yum. <laughs> um, but things like seaweed gives it kind of like a misty effect, um, which is really interesting. Um, but that has like a kind of effect on the final image, and then things like mint have a kind of like softer results. Um, so yeah, all all different plants have different phenol levels and different things within them that can affect the final image. I always have loads of mint left over. Um, so what you're saying is, I can make some developer out of that, and then <laughs> absolutely, and it smells amazing. It does That's it. Like my favorite developer I... because it smells like a really nice cocktail, but don't drink it. No, don't <laughs> drink it. I, I used to. I actually first when I when I uh, tried to be a student, I started studying photography at university. And I did um, black and white photography first and uh, spent a lot of time developing things in, in the darkroom. And I used to love the smell. Uh, ah, yeah. Yeah, it was kind of like a vinegary smell that really got up your nose. And I really enjoyed that. But mint would yeah, probably really be more that. pleasant. <laughs> yeah. And so what about the, the future plans for you, for yourself then, Melanie? Do you, are you, what are you working on now and what are you looking to work on with regards to, to anything space-related over the... the the coming year shall we say so at the moment i'm working on a new project in the peak district so i'm currently in manchester um and i am um, i'm going up into the peak district to take photographs that i'm then going to um make into cyanotypes um which is a kind of 19th century technique and then i'm going to use plants to affect the image some of those may be astronomical they may not be um and then i haven't actually um taken photographs on my own telescope um using my film camera so i think over the next year i'd really like to start um doing that i'd live in a seaside location in ramsgate and it's actually quite dark and i get quite a good view of the sky from there so i'm gonna give that a go i was gonna say uh, what's your favorite thing to look at through a telescope um i would say Probably the ring nebula or a globular cluster. Um, the ring nebula, just because when I've seen it, it actually has looked quite blue. Um, I don't know whether that was atmospheric effect or whether that is what it should look like. Um, but also globular clusters because they're so massive and they just seem like such interesting objects where all the stars are held in a gravitational pull with one another. Um, yeah, I find that absolutely fascinating how about you guys globular clusters one of the best things um and my favorite favorite thing is actually um vega or sirius which are the two of the really really bright stars but it's because through a telescope they look like a disco ball they just twinkle <laughs> yeah. and flicker so you could really pick actually you could someone's told me this um, where if you like do a long exposure on one of the really bright ones that's changing colour a lot because of the atmospheric effects on the light as it travels through our atmosphere, um, you can actually catch like different colours as you do a trail. If you do like a figure of eight or something, it turns different colours, like every shot is different. Um, which I thought would always be really interesting to get, but I am so bad at taking photographs that I could never achieve that myself. But it looks like it might be fun. <laughs> if you love the uh, the ring nebula, you love 
um, a little one called the Blue Snowball. Uh, and this one is really, really blue. If you haven't seen it before, it's a little bit smaller than the ring, but it is really, really blue uh, compared to the ring. So it's a beauty. And the same kind of thing, little planetary nebula. Um, but my favorite, my favorite one is is the uh, is of course the hairy eyebrow galaxy, uh, which we so frequently mention on this podcast. Right, <laughs> go out then. <laughs> I mean, there's barely a month goes by without a mention of a hairy eyebrow, <laughs> and there it is. <laughs> it is a good one, and it's visible right now as well. Actually, good good time of year to see it. See the hairy eyebrow. In fact, Ishbel, did you see the hairy? You've you've seen it recently, haven't you? Have we looked at the I hairy eyebrow? I don't think eyebrow? I have, actually. Oh, that's No, every time I've, I've been at the Obsey, I've been played with clouds as of late. Oh, um, right. Or um, we've had the planets, which have been way more interesting to, to look at than finding galaxies. No, the um, hairy eyebrows. No offence to galaxies. They are beautiful to find. <laughs> um, or the swimming alligator cluster. Oh, yeah. It's one of Ellie's favourites. That that's one. that's a new one that Ellie's found that yeah. we've been trying to find and work out. Does it really look like a swimming alligator, or is someone just making this up? Yeah. <laughs> you don't sound entirely convinced, but you know, maybe uh, maybe on a clearer night. <laughs> <laughs> eh. I need to I need to see it on a really clear night where it's like pristine and all the stars are properly there, and then I think it might be. I mean, if you look at some of the constellations. They definitely don't look like what they're meant to be, so it's closer than most. <laughs> yeah, that's well. That's that's uh, that's a lot of what astronomy is about. I think <laughs> starting out optimistic and uh, and hoping you find what you're hoping for. Optimism, optimism. Well, that's what we like. A little there's a bit of optimism in uh, in astronomy, and you definitely need that. Well, look, it's been great speaking with you, Melanie. Keep up the great work, and if people want to. Uh, check out your work online because I realise that a podcast is a is not the the greatest medium perhaps for for showing uh, photographs on unfortunately. But so if people want to check out your work for themselves or get in touch with you, um, how do they do that? Where can they find you online? Um, so if you go on my website melaniek.co.uk, you can see lots of my artwork on there, or you can go on my social media, which is Melanie. Cat King with a K for Instagram and Melanie K King on Twitter. Okay, good stuff. So there's the details. And uh, Melanie, all the best for your future projects and, of course, your current ones. And uh, thanks for joining us this month on the Keeled Observatory podcast. Thank you very much for having me. It's been really fun. And thanks to you for listening as well this month. We're back very soon with another episode. And in the meantime, you can keep up to date with everything happening at Kieldra Observatory on the main website, kieldraobservatory.org. And keep up to date with what's happening on a daily basis on social media as well, on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We've got regular posts on there uh, updating you on the things that we're up to and also the things that we've seen at Kieldra Observatory. And, uh, of course, keep your eyes peeled for those noctilucent clouds as we head in towards the summer months. Whilst the nights might be getting lighter, there are things that you can see only at this time of year and those are uh, just one example and also uh, don't forget to check out the uh, available sessions that we've got for you to come up and visit us in person as well because that's what we want to do we want to see you in person and uh, show you the things uh, that you can see in the sky in the dark sky park at Kielder there's plenty of sessions available some of which are before it gets dark as well especially for kids 
particularly that uh, happened earlier in the day. So have a look at those and book ahead for the school holidays. Again, all the availability is up on the website, kielderobservatory.org. And until next time, uh, thanks for joining us and we'll speak to you very soon on the next Kielder Observatory podcast. Mm-hmm.